entering the Freedom Hut. Impeachment blasts out into the open with hearings this week that people can actually watch. The blackout on the whistleblower's name from the media. Nikki Haley and the subversives. Democrats are mad and lonely. Border Patrol arrests drop dramatically. And the fate of DACA, that and oh so much more coming up on the Buck Sexton Show. This, this is the Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission, or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Happy Veterans Day. First and foremost, take a moment to thank the veterans in your life. Uh, thank someone for their service and for all of you veterans listening. Uh, thank you so much for being the brave patriots you are and being a part of the greatest, most powerful, most just military in the history of the world. So we got impeachment week starting now. This is when all of a sudden things start to happen out in the open. You'll see Democrats engaged in all kinds of grandstanding. It'll be wall-to-wall coverage by a lot of the news networks. The people who are at the top of the news hierarchy in many ways are having a Watergate tingle here. Ooh, Watergate. This is, this is when journalism can reassert itself. You see, Trump has been a challenge, a direct challenge, an affront, really, in their eyes, to the journalistic establishment. In fact, I would argue that that's one of the defining characteristics of his presidency, his willingness to call them fake news to say what they really are and not to back down when they claim, oh, it's basically violence. Oh, how could he say these things about us? It's terrible. Well, it turns out the president of the United States can't be bullied by the media or can't be persuaded. He can't be uh, bought off quite as easily as other Republicans in the past. That's for sure. I'm not saying opinion doesn't matter to him in the media. Sometimes I worry this president does read a little too much from, say, Maggie Haberman in the New York Times. I think he cares more than he should, but he cares a lot less than any of his predecessors. That is for sure. But the journalistic establishment sees this as an opportunity to reassert its role in American life, which for decades we've been told is to speak truth to power, to unearth that which the corrupt Uh, The oppressive want to hide. That's what journalism has told us it is all about for my entire life. And I'm sure for the lives of some of you listening who are quite a bit older than me. That's what they've been teaching people in journalism schools. This is what they say about themselves, unironically, mind you, on TV on a regular basis. Now is their chance to get no small degree of revenge against this president who has challenged their sense of who they are, their professions, yes, but also their role in American society and and their role in our day-to-day lives. Journalists are enraged at this president because he has pointed out that there is no special sect of our fellow Americans who are the the honest, the just, the the true journalists. They 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 don't exist. There's part there are partisans, there are activists, there are people who do everything that they can in order to push certain agendas. But if they can get rid of this president, like they got rid of Reagan, which I would, I'm sorry, (laughs) they got rid of Nixon. They wish they could have gotten rid of Reagan as they pushed uh, Nixon out. Not that Nixon didn't give them plenty to work with. He certainly did. 
but that would be a, re- a restoration in their minds to the old order, the way things are supposed to be. And so I just want to prepare you for, for those of you who are going to be watching some of the mainstream coverage or just it'll come up on your computer screens or on your smartphones as you're scanning through the news. Hopefully you just listen to this show and drown out much of that worthless noise. But if you do see it, I want you to be prepared for dishonesty on a level that will be truly mind-blowing for activism and partisanship from people who are telling you as they are trying to persuade you to go against a Republican president that they are not doing this because of any animus against the president or against the Republican Party or conservatism. They're doing this out of love of country because Trump has violated the Constitution. And then you could do what I do and say, what part of the Constitution exactly has he violated? Can you just point to what he has violated in the Constitution? If they're going to use the most broad designations possible, oh, he has failed to faithfully conduct his uh, office responsibilities. Like how? With a conversation that I have not heard a single credible lawyer say was a criminal act. Not one. How exactly are, is the president of the United States violating the Constitution? They won't have a good answer. They will just they will yell at you, though. They will make it clear that you're a bad person if you don't agree with them. Like those lunatics who were screaming in my face last week as I was on the way to a social event. They will yell, they will scream, they will shriek. Because Democrats are very, very angry. In fact, there's some polling that I will get to later in the show proves that Democrats really have lost their minds. I mean, this is now far too commonplace. People that identify with that ideology and with the culture of the Democratic Party don't have the tap the brakes mode anymore. They can't can't do it. Can't pull it off. They, they can't chill out. They are too frenzied around all of this stuff, perhaps because they have Democrat candidates for the presidency telling them that the world is going to end in 10 years unless we listen to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and institute the Green New Deal. Only dishonest or stupid people can believe that. But there are a lot of dishonest people and unfortunately even more stupid people. But one thing you will not hear a lot of this week as we enter the open phase. Now, there's still stuff going on behind closed doors. There's still lots of conspiring and uh, machinations, all sorts of underhanded, politically motivated stuff the Democrats are going to try to do to conjure up. I mean, this is really an act of political alchemy, what they're doing here with this phone call with Ukraine. Oh, we'll find a way. We'll come up with some way to convince people that something that they know instinctively and right away is not terrible. We'll, we'll make them believe that it's terrible. We just have to find the right way to present this, find the right words. One thing you will not hear is a fulsome discussion of the whistleblower reported by numerous outlets as uh, Eric Sharamella. And I'm seeing now some people are still running around saying that to, to use his name out loud is a crime and a violation of the whistleblower statute. My friends, this is now the desperate straits the left finds itself in when they will openly advocate for the criminalization of common knowledge. That's where we are. Things that are known publicly to anyone with access to the Internet who cares to know them can now be considered criminal on the left, including journalists who are going along with this and acting like, yeah, sure, maybe there is some crime here. The same journalists who will 
out intelligence programs and, and individuals recklessly. The same journalists who think that making America look bad in a time of war is, is always a patriotic duty. Doesn't matter if it results in greater attacks against U.S. soldiers. You know, they make those kinds of decisions all the time. No problem. Uh, but the whistleblower's identity is sacrosanct, at least for now. Why can't we just get confirmation of this, journos? Why don't you care to know? How can anyone pretend that this is not important? Here is a piece by James Freeman over the Wall Street Journal. In the 50 days since news consumers were told that a federal whistleblower was expressing his disapproval of a presidential phone call, CBS News has aired or published more than 100 stories on President Donald Trump and Ukraine. Counting stories from local affiliates, the number rises above 200. But CBS hasn't come close to the wall-to-wall coverage offered by rival ABC News. A search of ABC stories about Mr. Trump and Ukraine yields 687 results for the last 50 days. More than 300 of the ABC stories specifically include the term whistleblower. And roughly all the stories are derived from the original allegations formulated by the unnamed government employee in consultation with the Office of Representative Adam Schiff. Mr. Schiff publicly denied that such consultation had occurred, but later acknowledged the fact as his falsehood was exposed. Usually news organizations like ABC and CBS at least pretend to spend their days trying to report previously non-public information. But they recently decided not to report the name of the federal whistleblower. Ironically, the entire impeachment case hinges on an assumed political motivation by Mr. Trump for comments on a phone call that were not illegal. Yet by maintaining a blackout on the identity of the whistleblower, news outlets are impeding the public's ability to learn the possible political motivations of his accuser. That, James Freeman nails it here in the Wall Street Journal, that is exactly correct. And they have to at least get to the point where these hearings are up and running and going. They have to at least get to the point where we are seeing um, people on TV from the Democratic Party able to give their speeches about how Trump is horrible and Trump is this and Trump is that. All of those things have to occur. Right? This is, this is what's really going on here. And if at that point we are all able to talk about the name of this whistleblower, well, at least, at least then they will have launched the ship, so to speak, come what may. But the suppression of the whistleblower's identity is appalling. And it just shows us that journalism in America today is broken. Although I would actually argue we've just found out the truth about it. It it hasn't ever been anything other than what it is now. It's just more clear what it is because of Trump. It's more clear what we're dealing with because the president of the United States has turned journalists into lunatics in some kind of a frothy rage. They have lost their minds. They hate this guy and they will defame and profane their professions in order to take him down. Doesn't matter what they have to do. But how can journalists pretend to be honest brokers of the truth or how can they pretend that they are investigating and trying to get us the information we need when they are actively engaged in a campaign of information suppression by not referring to the alleged whistleblower. All of these news outlets were happy to print allegations against Justice Kavanaugh, for example, without any verification, without any journalistic standards beyond some person came out and said something. 
That's it. They ran with those. Oh, we're going to pretend now that whistleblower protection law is going to stop journalists from the same journalists who would out any classified or covert action program the U.S. government's running anywhere in the world if they felt the need to do it, which just is their whim. They decide, yeah, the, the public has a right to know. How often have you heard that? The public has a right to know. And it's not just the mainstream outlets either. It's not just the big journalistic edifices that still, I don't know why people, uh, we can't get past this era where people believe that these journos are, uh, these big institutions are somehow to be trusted even when they keep betraying that trust. How many times can you get burned by the partisanship of the Washington Post, the New York Times? How much fake news? How many false stories before one cancels a subscription and says, I'm no longer going to go to these people for my narrative of what is happening in America and around the world. I, I don't have an answer to that, but I do find it troubling. And this is where we are still to this day. But YouTube, YouTube now apparently also feels that there should not be a mention of the whistleblower's name. That's considered a violation of community standards, according to uh, one journalist named uh, Tim Poole. A violation of community standards that have to do with conspiring for criminal activity and possible harm against a person. That's right, my friends. The most powerful media companies in the country are refusing to report on the name of the single individual who is most newsworthy in America right now. They refuse to report on his name. They refuse to try to dig up more facts and background information. Why? They pretend it's because of concern of harm. Would that stop them in other instances? If this were a whistleblower against President Obama or a Democrat president, does anyone think that all of this bombast about the whistleblower statute would be emanating from the newsrooms across the country? I don't think so. It's because the so-called whistleblower, because he's not even really a whistleblower, folks, the so-called whistleblower is necessary to the anti-Trump movement right now. And there is nothing, nothing that is more important to the left than that. That is the single, the goal is to defeat Trump. Everything else falls into a distant, distant second place. Doesn't matter what this does to journalistic standards and ethics. You'll also notice the number of news reports on Project Veritas and what happened at ABC News. Just so we're keeping score here, so we're clear, NBC News... Clearly, clearly shut down at the top level from the top people there, shut down coverage of Harvey Weinstein's sexual, serial sexual predation because he was a super powerful liberal Democrat, friends with the Clintons, friends with the Obamas, and they didn't want to touch it. So there's your truth to power at NBC and ABC didn't want to report on serial pedophile and near billionaire Jeffrey Epstein, who has connections to some of the most powerful people in the world because his close connections were to people like the British royal families, Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton himself. When Hillary also was still thinking about running for president, by the way. We still trust them, though. Do you trust them? I certainly hope not. This man... From the first day he went into office, he wanted to have an alternative foreign policy where Jared Kushner wanted a 
special back-channel communication to Russia that no one would know about. Now he's got Giuliani running a back-channel improper foreign policy to get dirt on his political officials. Mm -hmm. You throw in a obstruction of Congress, you throw in obstruction of justice from Mueller. This is just an un a lawless administration that knows no restraint. And we're supposed to be publicly say, oh, we're going to listen, and I'm going to listen. And there could be some unbelievable thing that the president brings up, but no, there is clearly I obstruction of Congress, obstruction of justice, and abuse of power. That'll be about as, that, that incoherent blather from Representative Steve Cohen there, Democrat, of, of, of course, given what he's saying about President Trump, that goes without saying. Uh, Representative Steve Cohen is saying this stuff about the president, and you're thinking, wait, what? He's jumping around, you know, this thing he did, and obstructing this, and obstructing that, obstructing... The president engaged in unprecedented cooperation with the Mueller probe, which was f completely based on faulty premises and lies and collusion between the media and the Democratic Party and foreign sources, by the way. Not just Christopher Steele, the people he relied on for the information in that insane dossier, which I went back and read some more of over the weekend. The fact that anyone took the dossier seriously is a testament to the stupidity of some of the most powerful people in the intelligence apparatus and the federal bureaucracy. The dumbest rise to the top in the federal bureaucracy many times. Make no mistake about it. I've seen it myself. You have predicted, though, that the president is not going to last much longer, that he's going to resign or Yeah, I be think it's a, there's an overwhelming cascade of, of evidence. And so this week will be the starting of that waterfall. It's one thing when things are behind closed doors and you're doing an investigation. It's another thing when it's open theater and you can actually see the rank lawlessness of what's gone on and the lack of constitutionality in the process with the president. Uh, and I think I think it's not just a Ukrainian call. There will be other elements of this story that unfold where people will say, OK, wait a minute. There's a combination of incompetence. There's a combination of a, a, a destruction of the executive branch of the United States, in addition to the lawlessness uh, and traitorous like behavior. So traitorous like uh, behavior. Oh, there's no question. I mean, you're you you if you're if you're strong word, Anthony. Well, what word would you use? You're, you're on the phone with the president of the Ukraine and you're strong arming him uh, to have him go after your political opponent. OK, that is you're become a traitor to the Constitution and a traitor to the laws of the United States. Traitor. Just use the word a lot, Mooch. Traitor. Uh, isn't that interesting? This from a man who. E even at the time of, of Trump's greatest victory, which is the election. I mean, that was such a, a moment of, of shock for many people across the country. I know not that many of you listening to this, but at a time when a lot of people were trying to curry favor with the president, the uh, degree of sycophancy from Scaramucci was a sight to behold, and I saw it myself. This was a guy who'd go on TV, you know, the president's super genius. He's a Christian billionaire, super genius, you know, like Kanye says. Uh, the president, everything he does, he's playing 5D chess, 12D chess. The president understands the will of the American people. I mean, he would go, I, I remember this guy, because I sat on some panels with him. I did some sh shows with uh, with this this fellow, the Mooch. I was like, first of all, where did this guy come from? Why am I listening about anything? What does he know about any of this stuff? I don't know. I mean, look, the president's biggest, the president's biggest weakness, other than perhaps a bit of messaging and discipline sometimes, but is the people that he has put in positions of authority. Look at all these people are turning on him. Tillerson and Kelly and 
And those are some of the better ones. You've got Mooch and Amorosa and you got Cohen. And you, I mean, these are he's made a lot of bad, a lot of bad choices in that regard. Uh, I, I don't know what else to say other than he should have picked different people for these roles. But the Mooch saying that he's a traitor, I mean, that's you're going to hear a lot of that now. Just use the words, bash him, go after this president with the most uh, terrible allegations possible. That's going to be the choice. That's going to be the decision that they make. Then I also bring you Senator Chuck Schumer, though, who has to deal with the reality of what's going to happen in the Senate. You see, this is going to be the, the great moment for the Democrats right now when they can say whatever they want to say on the floor of the House. They can push whatever stories they want to push. And they don't have to worry about the votes because they have the votes. The truth, however, is that there's something different going on in the Senate where we fortunately have a Republican majority and would need two-thirds. The founders knew what they were doing with this. would need two-thirds in the Senate to vote for removal from office. And so also because they don't have a majority, the Senate procedures will be set not by the Democrats, but by the Republicans. So all the stuff you're seeing right now with Schiff and the behind closed doors and the lack of honesty and truth and fairness going on back there. This is so classic. They're railroading Trump where they have the majority. And then in the Senate, where they know they're going to have to deal with a whole different situation, they're going to plead for how, oh, come on, this is the Senate. We need to be fair here. So give us some give the Democrats some concessions. Don't don't just steamroll the Democrat argument here, the Democrat point of view. I mean, the argument is just get rid of Trump. There's really nothing beyond that. But don't steamroll us just because you have the majority. That's only something that happens in the House. Here's Senator Schumer, for example, trying to appear as though he's the reasonable man in this situation. Play four. McConnell is the majority leader, so it's his prerogative to set up rules. In the past, there's always been consultation with the minority leader, and I hope he will consult with us and we can get some fair bipartisan rules like was done uh, in the last impeachment situation with Bill Clinton. They initially came to an initial agreement that passed 100 to nothing. They had some disputes later, and it passed in a more divided way. But I am ready to sit down with Leader McConnell and try to come up with fair rules. There's no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that. So the Democrats are the minority there, but they want fair rules. Fair rules. Does anyone think that there are fair rules going on in the House? If you read, as I did over the weekend, some of the transcripts from these witnesses, the transcripts from these witnesses that have testified behind closed doors to the Democrat uh, Intelligence Committee run by Schiff, Every time they ask a question about, hey, was there, you know, did you collude or did you have any conversations or did you have any any back and forth with uh, you know, this or that Democrat asking the witnesses or a- anytime they start to get closer to a question, all of a sudden it's bah, 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 can't talk, can't talk. No, no, no. Don't answer. Don't answer. The Democrats just shout it down. They just shout it down. And there's no judge there, you see. So it's like imagine a courtroom where there's no judge. And any time a witness that is presented by the prosecution is about to get questioned by the defense, the prosecutors go, no, 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 can't hear, can't, and start yelling and, and screaming like a bunch of children. I'm not exaggerating. That's what they do in the House Intelligence Committee. That is what they are doing behind closed doors right now. They are saying, oh, sorry, can't, you know, can't talk, can't answer that question. 
fair process. Fair process, my my f- foot. Uh, it's, it's, I was angry. I don't know why my f- foot was when it came out of my mouth. But all right. Uh, but this is this reminds me very much of the uh, the quote from Frank Herbert's Children of Dune. Some of you will know what I'm talking about. When I am weaker than you, I ask for freedom because that is according to your principles. When I am stronger than you, I take away your freedom because that is according to my principles. Well, this is what the Democrats are doing. I, I tweeted this out last night. When Democrats don't have the votes, they ask for fairness because that is according to conservative principles. When Democrats do have the votes, they take away fairness because that is according to Democrat principles. It's exactly what's happening here. In the House, it's their way or the highway. Deal with it. Elections have consequences. In the Senate now, you're having Schumer in, in the vanguard here of the, oh, whoa, hold on. Let's, let's establish fair rules. Let's all agree. Let's all be civilized about this. You know, Yeah, because Democrats don't have the majority and they don't have the votes. These people... These leftists couldn't be any more transparent, but unfortunately, they don't really care. We have reached such polarized times that there's very little that a Democrat politician can do now that would turn any of his or her supporters against him. As long as it was geared toward the destruction of of President Trump, as long as that's the overall plan. Um, I would say, you know, Nikki Haley has a book coming out. And in her book, there are some things that, is, uh, that are, I think, troubling to read. And, and I, by the way, I, I don't know Nikki Haley. I've actually never interviewed her. These days, there are fewer and fewer of those officials that I've never had a chance to talk to. But I've never interviewed Nikki Haley. Um, I've heard that she's a straight shooter. I, I can't really speak to it beyond that. She has this uh, book coming out. Whoever. I also, all these public officials writing books, I, I find it a little, not just repetitive and boring, because these books are almost always a waste of everyone's time they're written for these officials it strikes me as a waste of time for most people but there are a couple of sometimes there'll be a couple of interesting things in it and here you have uh first of all nikki haley during an interview in advance of the book coming out saying that look there's nothing in the trans well let's hear from her play clip 25 you're gonna impeach a president for asking for a favor that didn't happen and and giving money and it wasn't withheld, I don't know what you would impeach him on. I mean, look, Nora, impeachment is like the death penalty for a public official. When you look at the transcript, there's nothing in that transcript that warrants the death penalty for the president. And I think that, to be clear, it was not a complete transcript. There are still things that are missing from it. And in that, he does say, I would like you to do us a favor, though. The Ukrainians never did the investigation. And the president released the funds. I mean, when you look at those, there's just nothing impeachable there. And more than that, I think the the biggest thing that bothers me is the American people should decide this. Why do we have a bunch of people in Congress making this decision? The transcript is incomplete. You'll hear this. This is another one of these things that journalists will say. And they think it's smart. They think that, they oh, I'm really up on things. Perhaps they should read through... The transcripts of the testimony behind closed doors, as I have, where you have these various witnesses, former ambassadors, NSC officials, etc., etc., brought forward by Adam Schiff for the sole purpose of trying to trash President Trump. And when Vindman, right, who 
the more we learn about him, the more clear it seems that he had a at least a policy axe to grind against the Trump administration. Uh, but but Vinman said when asked directly, well, maybe they didn't, you know, the company was named Burisma. They, they had that. That might have been left out of the transcript, that one word. But that's we all know what company he was talking about. So it doesn't really matter. Uh, is the rest of the transcript accurate? He was asked this. The guy who was you know, supposed to be bolstering this whistleblower's complaint because he also had concerns about it. He was asked, and guess what he said? Yeah, it was. It was accurate. Oh, okay. Well, look at that. So what's this? Oh, there's there's another transcript out there. There's something that's see they they say this. This is a dodge, because when you look at it and you say the transcript does not support impeachment, they go, well, but what about all this other stuff that also kind of happened that we don't like and buzzword buzzword and and the and the transcript's not even a direct transcript. I mean, my friends, this is this is actually conspiracy level stuff now. They've asked the people that heard the phone call, is this transcript representative? You know, was there was there anything? Did you remember being said that was left off of the transcript that would alter the meaning? And the answer is no. The answer is no. There's nothing that was like left off that would have, you know. So why do we keep hearing? I keep hearing this from journalists. Oh, it's not an exact transcript. Oh, okay. This would be like saying, you know, yeah, the, the defendant here signed a sworn confession, but there are like at least two or three misspellings in this confession. So therefore, it is an inaccurate document, isn't it? Because there are misspellings and misspellings are inaccurate. So now I can go around reporting on the inaccurate document that this individual uh, signed for his confession, the inaccurate confession. That's how propaganda works, you see. Take out context, take out nuance, take out understanding that we all have of the world, the English language, what words mean. And then just, oh, well, of course, the transcript is not verbatim. If that's the other way. The transcript is not verbatim. Okay, but they might have left out an uh, a the, or, you know, here or there. Does anyone really think there's there's not some other allegation that is not, con- you know, the, the, the whole crux of the case is that the president said, hey, can you, you know, find out some answers about the 2016 crowd strike thing and also look into the Biden situation with with Burisma because, you know, I heard bad stuff was going on there. That's it. That was the, you know, unless they're going to allege that there's some, and they're already saying it was a quid pro quo. So why why would the specific verbiage make any difference in the context of they've said that it's already there? It's just garbage, friends. It's garbage. But it's it's going to get so gross this week. I'm here to prepare you for this. What do you, for those of you that care to follow some of this political stuff that's going on in D.C., I mean, I, I think that. I mean, there's a presidency at stake, so it's hard to ignore it entirely. But I think most of the American people look at this and just say, I mean, you got you got to be kidding me. I mean, is this really what we're going to be spending our time doing? Is this really the way that uh, the, the media is going to focus all their... The answer is yes, that is how they're going to focus all their energy. Uh, but it's going to get, uh, it's going to get quite, quite nasty. That much is for sure. I'm the one that raised the issue from my phone call with uh, Gordon Solomon the day before where he described... You know, some some type of something that Ukraine had to do before President Trump would release the funding. And when I brought up that scenario, President Trump immediately, and I've described as adamantly and vehemently denied it. And yet here we are. Uh, we're going to be told that the facts aren't the facts and that the president clearly violated the law. They won't tell us what the law is that has been violated. 
But they know there's a law. They know there's a crime in there somewhere. That, that's the way they've always approached this president. We know he's a criminal. We just can't tell you what law he's broken yet. That's an interesting approach. Very, very Soviet in feel. But I suppose that shouldn't be surprising given the way that the left is embracing the suppression of common knowledge and public information like the whistleblower's name. That YouTube is taking down videos now with that is stunning. I've also heard that Facebook perhaps is... Uh, I can't remember which platforms now are okay and which ones aren't with it, but there are definitely some social media platforms where you you cannot, uh, even if you're referring to someone else's reporting. I mean, it really is Voldemort from the Harry Potter series, which I haven't read, and I think people reference too much in pop culture, particularly in the media, but, you know, it's he who shall not be named. And the fact of the matter is that he has been named, and we do have, the public does have a right to know, an interest in knowing exactly what is going on here. And journalists have abandoned their posts. Journalists have decided that it doesn't matter what the damage is that's done to the country in this process because the president's uh, such a bad man that even if they have to lie, cheat, and steal to get him out of office, they'll be doing their patriotic duty in the process. Oh, I mentioned Nikki Haley before. I wanted to get back to this. Uh, she talked about some of the people around the president who were not uh, not helpful to him. And she said John Kelly and Rex Tillerson, both of them. She does not have nice words to say about Rex Tillerson, which is unsurprising. Here's what she said, though, about undermining a president. Play 24. Instead of saying that to me, they should have been saying that to the president, not asking me to join them on their sidebar plan. It should have been go tell the president what your differences are and quit if you don't like what he's doing. But to undermine a president is really a very dangerous thing. And it goes against the Constitution and it goes against what the American people want. And it was was offensive. There are people all across the government, it seems, who think that the president is not really the president, including very senior officials who work for him. I just am waiting for the president to make one decision. I hear all the time about how these people need to, oh, he's he's so scary and terrible. Anything we have to do to stop. I just need one instance of the president making a decision that is a catastrophically bad decision. One, one decision. I'd like one. They said that about the trade war. They were wrong. They said that about Syria. They were wrong. They've said that about tax cuts. I mean, go down the list. They've said that about trying to secure the border, about building a wall. They were wrong. Where is this catastrophically bad decision making, except in the personnel he puts around him, who tell us that he's such a bad decision maker? The whistleblower and the president's right to present a defense. That is the piece by my man Andy McCarthy, who is, of course, at National Review, also Fox News contributor. He joins us now to tell us what's going on. Andy. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, Buck. How are you? I'm good. All right. So let's let's get into this because I've been talking about this for a while. That there's there's a concept here of the right to confront your accuser, and then there's the actual specific law of when you have a legal right to confront the accuser. Can you just kind of walk us through here the differentiation between you know whether the whistleblower as a function of law needs to testify versus whether in a fair process set up by the Congress, the whistleblower would in fact testify? Yeah, I think the latter, you could say for sure, Buck, in a fair process, he could be called to testify. There's so much legal confusion about all this, and people are throwing a lot of half-baked ideas around, not least the the idea of whistleblower itself. I've tried to point out that uh, this uh, fellow, 
who's been uh, identified elsewhere, if if that is the guy we're talking about. Um, he's been called a whistleblower, and maybe in some sort of uh, descriptive, non-legal sense, he's a whistleblower, like a common usage sense of that term. But under the only sense that matters, the statutory sense, he's not a whistleblower, because the statute that they're relying on uh, relates to intelligence activities that are under the jurisdiction of the director of national intelligence. This guy is not reporting on intelligence activities. He's reporting on the president's activities, specifically the conduct of foreign policy with a, uh, a counterpart in Ukraine, a foreign national or a foreign government. That is not what's covered in that statute. So he's not a whistleblower, even though the Trump intelligence community decided to treat him as one in an abundance of caution. So he doesn't even qualify for whistleblower status and under the law. And even if he did, um, the, the, the whistleblower protections that would be afforded to him would be against reprisals. Other than the uh, inspector general of the intelligence community, no one is required to uh, give the whistleblower anonymity. And even the uh, inspector general is not required to give it to him under all circumstances. For example, if you refer a matter to a prosecutor for trial, the expectation is that the whistleblower could become a witness where he would have to be public. So, you know, the, the whole idea of him being a whistleblower and entitled to anonymity is bogus. And then we get to this whole business of, you know, confrontation clause and should he be required to testify. The confrontation clause only gives a defendant in a criminal prosecution, and impeachment is not a criminal prosecution, but even if it, if it applied, you would only get the right to confront the witnesses that the prosecutor chooses to call in the trial. So if you analogize the Democrats to a prosecutor in a criminal case, if they don't call the witness, uh, the whistleblower so-called as a witness, then you wouldn't have a Sixth Amendment confrontation clause right to call him or, or to cross-examine him at the trial. And finally, that's why I've argued that the, what they should be talking about here is not the president's confrontation rights. It's his right to present a defense. And in any proceeding that's not a kangaroo court, you always get that. Is the president being afforded any right to present a defense from what you're seeing so far? Not at this stage. Uh, and that's because I think bogusly the Democrats are equating, at least when it's convenient to them to do it, they are equating this phase, this intelligence committee phase run by Adam Schiff of their investigation. They're equating that to a grand jury. Now, in a grand jury proceeding, the prosecutor is not required to present exculpatory evidence to the grand jury because the only thing the grand jury is there to decide is the limited question of whether there's probable cause that a crime got committed such that the prosecutor should be able to get an indictment and then you bring the case to a trial court where the defendant would get to present his defense and have all those rights, etc. The reason I say that Schiff is only doing that uh, grand jury analogy when it's convenient for him is that the trade-off for prosecutors is 
yes, in the grand jury, you get to give the grand jurors only your version of events, and you can muzzle the defense's version of events, but it's all got to be done in secret so that you don't prejudice the defendant. And what Schiff is trying to do here is have the best of both worlds. Right, it's a him. leaky grand jury. Right. He wants to exactly right. He wants to muzzle the exculpatory evidence, muzzle the president's defense. But he wants to take what he thinks are the best witnesses to him and go public with it, which is why I think that people who are uh, describing this as a show trial are exactly right about that. Now, this point that was made, I don't know if you saw it on The View, Andy, that it could be a crime to speak the name of the alleged whistleblower. How do people with legal degrees say this stuff on TV? I just want to know. Well, I don't know. I mean, I I, I spent 20 years in courtrooms with people with legal degrees saying all kinds of crazy stuff. (laughs) So I got to tell you, sometimes that comes with the territory. But I I find, though, that when they're talking on television, what went on in the courtroom seems modest. Um, That is just, you know, it's nonsense. There's no legal prescription against mentioning the whistleblower. And in fact, if the whistleblower was blowing a whistle on a Democrat, the media would not only report the name, they would lecture you about the public's right to know and how that takes precedence over needs for secrecy and all that stuff. So it always with these guys depends on whose ox is being gored. So now, you know, it's a Republican president. So the whistleblower is, uh, you know, one of humanity's great heroes. Their uh, their situational ethics are highly flexible, acrobatic even. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I would say. I, I would ask Andy, uh, what are you expecting this week? Now that this stuff's coming out in the open, give us your, your preview of where you think, you know, where, where are they going to take this based on everything that, that Schiff and the Democrats have been doing so far? And also, what do you think Republicans' response should be in the Congress? Yeah, I think this far, for the Democrats' standpoint, Buck, this three or four days of hearings, whatever it's going to be this week, is going to be pretty scripted. They've picked out the handful of witnesses that they think are best for them to bruise up President Trump. They're uh, essentially uh, going to deny the Republicans the right to call witnesses that would put these things in context. So what the Republicans want to show is that if the president was demanding investigations of uh, the Bidens and investigations of corruption, it was because... Uh, Ukraine is pervasively corrupt. There's reason to believe, good faith reason to believe the Bidens were engaged in in corrupt self-dealing. And what the Republicans also want to show is there's a 2016 election component of a Ukraine component uh, in what would be what we would think of as the Bar Durham investigation into the origins of the Trump Russia investigation. What I mean by that is there's a lot of reporting that the Obama administration leaned on Ukraine to do things like investigate Paul Manafort, who was temporarily Trump's campaign uh, chairman. And there's also evidence that uh, Ukrainian officials colluded with the Clinton campaign. Uh, and that's just not me. That's not just me saying that a Ukrainian court has found that to be the case. So I think the Republicans want to bring all of this out in order to place in context exactly what President Trump was asking of President Zelensky of Ukraine. And naturally, the Democrats want to keep all of that out and then suggest that, you know, Trump was simply 
uh, doing nothing other than demanding an investigation of his political rival for potential violations of Ukrainian law. And they want to, of course, then make the argument that, you know, the federal government, the American federal government uh, exists to protect us from uh, foreign regimes. We shouldn't have a president encouraging a foreign regime to investigate an American citizen for violations of Ukrainian law. Now, Annie, I want to ask you, because, you know, Politico, for example, uh, reported this recently. According to Giuliani, Ukrainian officials conspired with the Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee to help boost the Democratic nominee's campaign and damage Trump's candidacy. No evidence has emerged to support that idea. That's Politico, which was the rival of the Hill where I used to work, just for full disclosure, right? And then you go back to January of 2017, also in Politico, not retracted or amended, the following. Ukrainian efforts to sabotage Trump backfire. Kiev officials are scrambling to make amends with the president-elect after quietly working to boost Clinton. And it goes on to talk about how Ukrainian officials tried to help Hillary Clinton and undermine Trump by publicly questioning his fitness for office. They also disseminated documents implicating a top Trump aide in corruption and suggested they were investigating the matter only to back away after the election. They helped Clinton's allies research damaging information on Trump and his advisors, according to Politico. Uh, so which Politico do we believe, Andy? And, and, and a more serious question, I, I just, is this denied? Is this, or is this not what happened? Because if this is what happened, then everybody that's running around screaming treason for Trump asking a country to investigate what seemed to me to be quite a corrupt arrangement needs to explain why it was okay for the Obama administration to do that to try to help Hillary during the election. Yeah, Buck, I think... What we need to watch very carefully here is if you listen to the things that Adam Schiff says and the way they are being reported in the media, what he's now saying is that what Trump was looking for was an investigation into what he calls a, uh, a refuted conspiracy theory about Ukraine being connected somehow to CrowdStrike which is the outfit that... um, Looked at the server, right? The DNC server. Exactly. Right. So what Schiff is trying to do is miniaturize this into saying what Trump was asking for was an investigation into whether the Ukrainians had something to do with the DNC server. And that may be a conspiracy theory that, that doesn't have much in the way of legs, but the story of Ukraine's connection to the Obama administration's investigation of the Trump campaign in 2016 has a lot more to it than the server and CrowdStrike. So I think what we should do is like sort of carefully watch Schiff and watch the way he is parsing that end of it. Because, you know, obviously, again, there is a whole angle involving the Obama administration leaning on the Ukrainians to investigate Manafort and a Ukrainian legislator and the head of the Ukrainian uh, so-called anti-corruption police uh, leaking information to the media that was harmful to Manafort with the intention of trying to help the Clinton campaign. I mean, that's that's out there. And that's the reason the Republicans have asked for these witnesses that are connected to those things is precisely because they want to put all that out in public and try to put the president's comments in context. So there is there is a, a serious possibility here, based on reporting 
from news organizations that didn't realize then that this would be helpful to Republicans perhaps now, that there was outreach from the Obama administration to go after a Trump campaign, Trump campaign uh, chairman at the time, right? Um, which would certainly look a lot like asking for foreign interference in an election, whether or not Manafort was was dirty. Yeah, and, and Buck, I would underscore a Ukrainian court has found that the Ukrainian legislator and the head of the anti-corruption police colluded uh, with an American campaign, namely the Clinton campaign, in order to interfere in the American election. They've they've found that. So, you know, this is not something we're pulling out of the sky. And what's going on here, real quick, before we let you go uh, back to the rest of your life, what's going on here with the delayed report? Uh, on FISA abuse. Now I'm hearing, you know, I heard it was th- I heard it was going to be Halloween. Then I heard it was going to be before Thanksgiving. Now it's like I'm hearing hopefully before the next election, practically. Well, what's going on? Any ideas? Well, I think I still think uh, it's going to be I hope it's before Thanksgiving, but I think it'll be it'll be reasonably soon. And I think, Buck, that all that's going on here, I've heard some theories that are out there that, you know, maybe he's dragging his feet because he doesn't want to step on whatever uh, Durham is doing. That's the latest theory. My own theory, for what it's worth, is that Horowitz has indicated to Congress and to the Justice Department that he's done and that they are in the final uh, rushes of putting the report out. And my sense of it is that the sheer bulk of this report Remember, the Clinton emails one was like five or six hundred pages. This is going to be a bigger report than that, maybe hundreds of pages longer. And they have to do a line by line with every intelligence agency that has equity in terms of anything that's designated as classified information. And Barr's got to do a review about, you know, what stays classified and what gets unclassified. And I just think that that's a complicated process to get through with a document that's going to turn out to be very, very long. And is, I is Durham the real deal, is, by the way? I've been reading about him, and it seems like he is the guy that we would want looking into this. You're talking Durham? Durham up in Connecticut, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Durham's a terrific guy. Um, he's an excellent prosecutor. I happen to know him personally. I haven't uh, worked with him, uh, but I know him and think very well of him. Judge Mukasey, the former AG of the uh, Bush administration who did not only work with him, but picked him to do the investigation involving the CIA interrogations, thinks the world of him, which goes a long way in my book. But he's done these kinds of investigations, Buck, uh, for uh, administrations of both parties going back to the Clinton administration. And everybody says that, you know, he's a very scrupulous guy who you won't hear from because he doesn't talk to the media. And he puts his nose to the grindstone and gets a job done. He's not He's not fast. If that's what people are looking for, they're not going to get that. But uh, he's thorough. All right. Andy McCarthy, everybody, check out his latest on NationalReview.com, The Whistleblower and the President's Right to Present a Defense. Andy, thanks so much for your time. We'll talk to you soon. My pleasure, Buck. Andy's the best, isn't he? It's always so fun to have Andy McCarthy on. Uh, as, as good as any legal analyst you'll find anywhere and honest about it all. Uh, the poll that I mentioned before about how Democrats are crazy, it's a real poll. Axios reporting on it today. Here's what you got. More than 70% of Democrats say politics is making them increasingly angry about America, leaving them feeling like strangers in their own land, according to an Axios on HBO poll. Um, The big picture, Americans as a whole are just plain mad and feeling like strangers in their own land. Uh, Republicans 
57% are angry compared to 74% of Democrats. 71% of Democrats say they feel like a stranger to their own land. Folks, 7 out of 10 people in this survey who are Democrats are saying, by the way, 5 out of 10 are Republican, but, you know, there's always going to be some angry people. Life is frustrating and difficult. But 7 out of 10 Democrats, according to this poll, are angry right now because of politics, specifically. Because of politics. So when I tell you that there's a mass delusion, there's a mass hysteria, the Democrats have lost it, the numbers back me up. I'm not just pulling this stuff out of nowhere. The numbers suggest what I'm saying is true because here's the thing. It is true. I think we understand that. Democrats have gone crazy. Uh, They have been broken in the Trump era and have no interest in trying to set things right uh, in any way other than that. That were rather in any way that does not involve the removal of this president from office and from power. That that much is very clear at this point in time. The DACA kids, all they want to do is become Americans. They came here when they were little. They weren't, you know, they didn't cross the border themselves. Their parents brought them. And so many of them are in our armed forces. So many of them are going to college and trying to make a good life for themselves. There's broad consensus, Democrats, independents, Republicans, that these that DACA ought to pass. And I hope the courts will uphold that. Oh, my friends. So much dishonesty around the immigration debate. It's one of the uh, most difficult conversations to have with liberals these days because they've just been told so much that is not true and they are so insistent on it being true. We have a couple of very important dynamics happening or immigration issues, I should say, occurring right right now. Uh, one has to do with the border, which I'll get into in a moment, and the reasonably, I shouldn't say the securing of the border, but the more effective efforts at securing the border compared to where we were some months ago. But first, I want to talk about DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, This is going to get heard by the Supreme Court, I believe, tomorrow, and there should be a decision made by the court sometime in June of 2020. So we're not going to get a final ruling on this for a while. But there are some very important issues at stake here. And every news report you read about this is just going to be kids who are great, who are aspiring for the American dream, who they're all valedictorians, they all want to serve in the military, all they do is just be amazing all the time, and big, bad, mean Republicans are supporting the administration, which is saying that the DACA program needs to end. Uh, There is, before I get into DACA itself, because this is what they're going to skip past right away, there's a rule of law issue that is is very much at stake here, and that is really the prime issue, the primary concern that I have about this, because... The Obama administration, very explicitly, you'll remember this, they said that they wanted comprehensive immigration reform. President Obama relied upon his power in the as the chief executive of the United States government, he said, as an executive order to just declare that there would no longer be enforcement of duly passed congressional, congressional statutes about illegal act, uh, illegal presence in America under immigration law. President Obama just said, look, Congress isn't doing what I want Congress to do, so I'm just going to do what I want to do, and I don't care about what that, what, what message that sends. I don't care about you know, the rule of law and the effects on the rule of law as a result of this. So Obama just said, you know, we will do this thing where you don't deport dreamers. He made a decision as commander-in-chief, as the president of the United States at the time. President Trump comes into office and says, "Okay, 
put aside for a moment, put aside for a moment whether you like the idea of DACA or not. The Trump administration is arguing something very straightforward here. What, a pre- what one president can do via executive authority can be, well, you know, when one policy issue can be undone via executive authority, especially because this, the, the entirety of the DACA argument, as it was offered up at the time, was that it was just a prosecutorial prioritization maneuver. That also allowed them to that allowed people under DACA by executive fiat. This was just conjured out of thin air to uh, work. They they register. They're allowed to work and they're allowed to stay in the United States, uh, and they have to renew their DACA protection. So it created this process for people to stay in the country, even though they're actually in the country illegally. And the Trump administration came in and said, "Okay, well, we don't want to do this because this is an extra legal or illegal program." This was not passed by Congress. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And at a minimum, you would think that the Trump administration would have the same discretion to not prosecute. The Trump administration would have the have that discretion and be in a position to prosecute or, in this sense, remove the prohibition on prosecution. That's all. By the way, I don't think that people, even if the DACA program ended, I, I think that they'd be a very low prioritization for deportation anyway. And I do think that this is why there's such a focus on DACA, that these are the people who are the it's, they have the most sympathetic cases for being in the country illegally. But then there should also be an understanding, well, if we're not going to just enforce the law as is, there should be a quid pro quo, dare I say. That DACA, if, if the Republicans were to go along with DACA for the Democrats, but if it meant real meaningful border security and reform of immigration laws, that that's a bargaining chip that could be used. Instead, what happened was a court, no surprise, I'm sure it was an Obama appointee, although I don't know that, but I'm guessing it was an Obama appointee with the ruling, said, sorry, under the Administrative Procedure Act, this is arbitrary and capricious. Therefore, the president cannot undo what a president before him did because the judge says so. Now, there are some who would argue that, that this isn't even really in the purview of a federal judge to review that's one that's one argument then there's also how is it possible that you know can can one president not end the war that another president starts under the administrative procedure act i mean this is when you start to see a a lawlessness from these institutions that are supposed to be upholding the rule of law this is where you see a an abandoning of principle and of uh following legal text and its replacement with the whims of people who happen to be on the on the judiciary it's absurd here you had uh, the founder of scotus blog tweeted this out i thought this was great uh, scotus blog is a supreme court blog all they do is cover supreme court stuff he wrote this is an enormously important stupid case enormously important for the individuals involved in immigration policy but stupid because if Barack Obama can create the program, real Donald Trump can withdraw it. Yeah. This is very straightforward. This is not complicated stuff. What one president can decide to do, another president can decide not to do. If it is within presidential discretion, right? If one person's allowed to walk into a store and say, I want to buy 
uh, you know, strawberry ice cream or, or chocolate ice cream. I'm going to go with the, you know, the, or, or vanilla. I'm going to go with strawberry. Another person can walk into the store if they have that same consumer discretion and say, I'm going to get the, you know, the Rocky Road ice cream or the strawberry or whatever it is. Right. It, 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 you have a problem if the same choice cannot be made by the same people, in the same given the same authority under the law. So what's the answer here? Oh, hashtag resistance. Judge doesn't like it. Taking away DACA status is mean. Administrative Procedure Act? You've got to be kidding me. But what that means is that this is just because I this is because I say so in legalese from a judge. Why can't you do this? Yeah, a violation of the administrative because there's not enough notice here under blah blah blah. Come on, this is entirely nonsensical stuff. But there are very major there are major implications here, major implications for rule of law and. It's also just a reminder of the length the judiciary has been willing to go to in order to undermine President Trump and in the process undermine the very federal judiciary itself. The lengths have been extreme. Um, and then you have just the, the border overall right now. You have uh, a 75 percent decrease in illegal border crossings since May. And this is attributable to Trump administration policies. The Trump administration has taken some important steps that have been very helpful in trying to uh, stop this situation from continuing on. You had 130, just just to give you some numbers of what's going on at the border, 132,000 arrests at our southern border back in May. Those are illegal crossings, people caught. So 132,000 are caught. How many got across? Think about that. And then also, uh, it's down to 36,000 in October. What are some of the moves? Let's take a little stock here, because I was very uh, much involved in trying to publicize what was going on at the border. I spent time at a couple of border sectors with Border Patrol, trying to get the word out. A lot of appearances on Tucker uh, Carlson's show. Wrote a couple of articles in TheHill.com. One of them actually got shared by the official Trump and White House Twitter accounts about the scams going on at our southern border with uh, immigration. So what has changed? What has been the, the shift here? Uh, we have a few things. One, Mexico, at the behest of the Trump administration, has decided to step up immigration enforcement. So the Mexican government, with pressure from the Trump administration, has said that there has actually put more of its own National Guard troops at its border with Central American countries uh, and then stopped the inflow into Mexico, which is obviously very helpful because the inflow to Mexico becomes the inflow in the United States. Mexico has also agreed to have 55,000 migrants remain in Mexico. And guess what? Turns out that people who are told you can apply for asylum in the United States, but you have to wait in Mexico while you do it. Some of them are going all the way back to Central America. Hmm. Now, there are two ways that this will be described. The The media, uh, well, first of all, this and that program is facing legal challenges. So you have all the different open borders advocates, the Democrat Party, of course, leading the charge, all these different open borders advocates who are saying, oh, no, you can't work out. The United States does not have the sovereign right to work out an agreement with Mexico where they keep asylum seekers in Mexico waiting for their day in court in the United States. They want to fight that because we all understand what the incentive is here. The incentive all along was show up at the southern border, claim that you're fleeing gang violence, 
read practically from a script about what you have to say to get into the country to pass that first credible fear test. And then once you're in the United States, you're good. Now you're home free. Don't worry about it. You're out of custody. They're never they're not going to find you again. You're not going to show up for your hearing. If you do show up, you got to show up a few times before they can even take any action against you. You can fight against your actual extradition, even when you lose your asylum appeal. I mean, it's impossible. You're going to be good. So all you got to do is get into the country, get out of detention, and you're, you're good to go. And that was the whole game. Turns out when people are told, hey, guess what? You got to wait in Mexico. They go, oh, the scam isn't going to work anymore. Got to go back to Central America. Better to go back to the country that they, many of whom would claim, was a threat to their very lives than to just wait a few months maybe in Mexico for their asylum hearing. That seems to be a strange choice. Although it's not a strange choice if you aren't really fleeing gang violence, you're just an economic migrant and you're trying to find a way to game the system to get into America, which is what a vast majority of the Central American migrants were doing, as told to me by Border Patrol and as I uh, was able to find when we would hear the, in some cases, the actual arrests going on of the Central American migrants when they're telling their stories to Border Patrol when I was there. So that's another thing. And then they have instituted a policy where if you pass through Mexico and don't at first try to get asylum in Mexico if you're from Central America, then you cannot claim asylum in the United States. Essentially, you cannot go jurisdiction shopping or, or nation state shopping as an asylee if you're really claiming asylum if you're under mortal threat if you're oppressed and fleeing you know tyranny the first country that isn't going to tyrannize and threaten you is the one that you should be asking for asylum in. you don't you don't get to say well i just want the i want the best richest biggest welfare benefit country in the western hemisphere you're, you're not allowed to do that anymore to the trump administration oh of course the libs are very upset about about that. Um, and then one other thing here. Not getting a lot of attention. I remember there were some cons- so-called, well, I don't know, conservatives. Some of them were never Trumpers. Who were very upset about the declaration of a state of emergency that Trump made. Ooh, are all of our civil rights being trampled on because of the Trump declaration of emergency? Well, it turns out that uh, by the end of 2020, the Trump administration is hoping to have constructed 450 miles because of the declaration of emergency and the, and the moving of funds within the, the federal budget to the border construction, border wall construction. They're hoping to have 450 miles of border wall by the end of 2020. If Trump gets close to 500 miles of new wall, not just upgraded fence, new fence, new wall, whatever we're calling it, uh, those build the wall chants are going to be very loud going into what I think will be his reelection. People said he'd never do it, never happened, can't happen. Well, if they really are on track, if this is correct, this is reporting the Wall Street Journal to put up 450 miles of wall by the end of this year, or by the end of next year, I think you'd have to consider that a promise kept, or at least close to a promise kept, a promise in progress on something that critics of the Trump administration were saying all along, absolutely impossible. There's no way that he'd be able to pull that off. So we will continue to watch the border and the administration's response to it. I'm worried that we're running out of time. Every time the scientists reanalyze the data, it's worse than they thought. So when they thought we had this much time to do something, it turns out when they reanalyze the data, it's this much time and that it's this much time. Um, We've got to be moving on every front. This is our only planet. 
and I think of the responsibility that we have to future generations. We didn't, we didn't inherit this earth from our grandparents or borrowing it from our grandchildren. And we have a responsibility to leave them an earth that is sustainable, an earth that will support life. And I don't know about you, but I refuse and reject and absolutely will not accept the choice of re uh, the choice, sorry. I refuse to accept the choice of leaving a planet that is diminished and dying to the next generation. I refuse to choose that. And because we refuse to choose that, then we, what we have no choice to do is to act. To do exactly what they say. What Warren says, what AOC says, that's your, that, there's no choice here. You must do what they say because the planet is at stake. These people are nuts, folks. This is crazy. This is crazy. What's amazing is when you speak to people who think they're very sophisticated, very, very educated, wealthy, erudite across the country in the liberal enclaves, they look at you like you're nuts if you don't think the world is going to end in 10 years unless we listen to complete nincompoops in the Democratic Party who don't know a thing about a thing and let them run the entire economy and let them transform the global economy without a basic understanding of how economics works and just how much crazier can it get? How much more bonkers can the Democratic Party be before there is some kind of reckoning, some kind of awakening about what is really going on here. How to take down a charter school. This is a story that I find I find infuriating, fascinating, and uh, well worth it for those of you that want to. We'll, we'll put the story up. It's from TheAtlantic.com. John McWhorter is the author of the piece, and it tells a story, a story that people should know because it deals very much with social justice rhetoric and wokeness and uh, and whiteness and all these different concepts that are constantly uh, being used and and leveraged and alleged on the left, depending on what we're talking about. There's a charter school in Brooklyn called Ascend. Uh, in fact, it's now a network of 15 schools, but it was founded 10 years ago by a man named Stephen Wilson. And Stephen Wilson, who you would think would be celebrated by the left because he founded a charter school that has done what so many public schools across the country cannot figure out how to do, which is to take uh, young, predominantly minority, black and, and Latino children who are from underprivileged backgrounds and make them exceptional students doing well, getting good grades, beating the you know national or the state average on the test scores. Success, like Success Academy here in New York, another place that's been made controversial because the left really doesn't like success that goes outside the public school model because public school is actually a form of socialism and central planning runs it. And it is it is a mediocrity factory and a jobs program. I mean, that's what the national level public school system is. And to call it a mediocrity factory might be generous. 
probably is very generous, actually. But charter schools sometimes do what we're told is so hard to do, which is to find a way to inspire and, and promote learning among uh, underprivileged minority children. You would think the left, which talks all the time about diversity and inclusion and equity and multiculturalism, you would think the left would say, oh, my gosh, this is great. How do we how can we do this? How can we find a way to replicate this success? But no, they want to shut it down. They want to shut down these charter schools when they can. They want to make sure that people don't believe that these different philo- uh, philosophies when it comes to education are more effective than the one-size-fits-all approach of the, you know, the, the bland intellectual gruel that is served up to our children, courtesy of the Department of Education across the country. But this uh, innovative educator, Stephen Wilson, put up a blog post that I have read. I have read the, the piece by John McWhorter. The blog post from this past summer written by Steve Wilson, the found Stephen Wilson, the founder of Ascend Charter School, and then also the change.org petition from Friends of Ascend, they say, asking for this guy to get in trouble. By the way, uh, he has been fired or removed from his position by the board of the very charter school system that he founded that was so successful for so many young uh, underprivileged minority children. He's been kicked out. Why has he been kicked out? Because he wrote a blog piece, The Promise of Intellectual Joy, that is really worth reading, by the way. I mean, it's only about eight pages long, and I was impressed, impressed with his willingness to look at some of the educational missteps in this country's past and how there has been for now over 100 years a debate that has been raging back and forth where people in the educational establishment, uh, I'm not really talking about university level, really talking about uh, grammar school and and high school, but there have been these moments in time when, or periods of time, when the educational establishment was saying, oh, let's not, we, we don't need a liberal education. We don't need an education that tries to inspire the mind, promotes a joy and love of learning. Let's just teach people how to keep themselves clean, you know, how to do the basics of uh, living day to day of, you know, computational arithmetic for buying things in the store. Uh, Let's teach them these these basic life skills, essentially, at the expense of teaching them about the life of the mind and that these movements have have popped up at different times and it popped up for example in the early 20th century this is all in this promise of intellectual joy piece written by this esteemed educator uh, that when there was a big surge of immigrants into the country for example that the educational establishment public schools in this country uh, was pushing for effectively dumbing down the teaching so that you're not learning the life of the mind you're not learning about the promise of intellectual joy and and trying to give that to everyone as a gift for the rest of their lives you're teaching them how to be cogs in the in this state machine how to you know be able to more or less function day to day in a way that they're not too much of a drain on the state a tremendously condescending approach to education now stephen wilson is taking the approach that this is wrong that this should not be done. Um, And here's some of how John McWhorter uh, 
uh, describes this this debate. Wilson decries how the pushback against traditional education with its rote learning and culturally narrow range of perspective has often entailed the pendulum swing too far in the other direction toward a gauzy student-focused approach that de-emphasizes the authority of the teacher or, most disturbingly, the learning of facts. Wilson's problem is with people such as Rousseau and John Dewey and even Dwight D. Eisenhower, who espouse what Wilson considers anti-intellectual ideas about how and what children should learn. Wilson observed in his blog post, this is where he gets into trouble, folks. This is where they come after him. Wilson observed in his blog post that liberal education is under fresh attack, this time as whiteness. The petition states, this claim equates a liberal education with whiteness, the very opposite of Wilson's argument. The underlying message here, say the petition writers, is that a liberal education is whiteness, whiteness is therefore intellectual, and any challenge to a liberal education is a challenge to whiteness, so any challenge to whiteness is anti-intellectual. Even following the rather tortuous logic here, Wilson gives no indication of thinking that all challenges to something as vast as white hegemony qualify as anti-intellectualism. Elsewhere, Wilson criticizes the idea that focus on a text is a kind of white supremacy. That's right, my friends. Focusing on the words in a text when you're teaching literature or English language, that is decried in some places in the educational system now as white supremacy. The words. Focus on the words. That's white supremacy. Oh? Says who? Says people in the educational establishment. Quote, that may sound bizarre, but at a conference about white supremacy culture and education convened by the New York City Schools Chancellor Richard Carranza, attendees were shown a slide explaining that white supremacist thinking includes, quote, worship of the written word and even objectivity. End quote. Educational conference at the highest level here in the public school system in New York City that is making the claim and instructing other educators to propagate this claim that objectivity and the written word itself can be a form of white supremacy. I I know if you're wondering what the heck is going on, you are not alone. Um, but it doesn't matter what he says. It doesn't matter what he really wrote. The petition quotes Wilson's concern and then with no argumentation whatsoever, flags him as protecting white supremacy culture and a paternalistic orientation toward the work of social justice reform. Now, my friends, here's the real here's the real problem. Here's why this guy Wilson had to lose his job after doing more for minority children in New York City than any of these social justice activists on the change.org petition. The problem is that he pointed out that there is a movement underway right now, as there has has been at different times in the past, to teach differently to minority children, to teach in a way that is more culturally sensitive and culturally inclusive. And so that means making choices, making distinctions that go away from trying to inspire everybody with the same ideas and ideals and great literature and great learning. 
and teaching differently to minority children in order to give them something that they will be more apt to take to and to handle well in the classroom. Now, they think the social justice left thinks that doing this teaching differently to minority children in a public school is something that should be promoted and celebrated. And and that's why they're also attacking a culture of objectivity and words on the page, meaning what they mean as a form of whiteness. And this is all it's I mean, I have the documents in front of me. This is all in the petition. Uh, and that this is white, toxic, patriarchal masculinity in the classroom. Right. You know, learn, read poems from the great poets and read what they say, not reinterpret it and write your own poem that has the same title, but, you know, is more uh, culturally in line with what you wish the poem said. You know, that's anathema now. That's no longer acceptable. And there have been other times in history when in the public school system in this country, people have argued that certain groups, immigrants, the poor, Minorities should be taught differently, and the promise of intellectual joy that Wilson is trying to advocate for is that all people, all children, have the same intellectual inheritance, which is this, that we should all be striving for greater knowledge and understanding. The, the roots of a liberal education are to give you a joy of learning and understanding and the process of wrestling with thoughts and coming to conclusions and understanding reason and understanding logic and thinking about your place in the world. That is everybody's inheritance, irrespective of skin color, irrespective of socioeconomic background. And the children should all be given the best that we can in terms of the life of the mind and the promise of intellectual joy. But this runs afoul of the social justice activists who want to say that this is, you know, oh, all the all the authors that are being taught in this classroom, classroom, it's all old white, old dead white males. It doesn't matter if the book is a timely, you know, is timeless or incredibly well written or deals with a historical period that all human beings should be, you know, very familiar with. In fact, if you were really wondering the lengths that this this uh, social justice group was willing to go to to get Stephen Wilson, founder of the Ascend Charter School System, fired. Just remember that when he specifically, quote, the, when, when he specifically cites the gr- great African-American writers and intellectuals from American history, he cites uh, Martin Luther King, he cites Frederick Douglass, he cites James Baldwin, he says, you know, this is, and and their timelessness and their role in you know, the, our, our educational system, people understanding the greatness of their thoughts, their writing. His citation of great African-American authors and writers of the past and the need to make sure that they are represented in the classroom because of their intellectual worth, because of their greatness, that is taken as further evidence of his transgression by the social justice left. I bring you this. Quote, the author asked, what would they make of Frederick Douglass's Fourth of July speak, Martin, uh, speech, um, Uh, Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail or James Baldwin's letter to his nephew, my dungeon shook in the fire next time. The author concludes this point by stating it is hard to imagine a more destructive message to teachers and their students. This too will surely become to seen as another wrong turn on the way to equal opportunity. These statements, this is from the petition to get this guy fired. Okay. These statements represent a commitment to protecting white supremacy culture and paternalistic orientation toward the work of social justice reform. 
This is from the petition that got this guy fired from the 15 school charter charter school network that he built from the ground up. This is why he got fired. He was citing great African-American intellectual and literary heroes from from within America, from within our own our own tradition. And they viewed that as a another transgression. How dare you use great black great black authors to make the case that young black and Latino children have heroes from within their own intellectual tradition that are promoting the same virtues and greatness and life of the mind that other other authors are, and therefore the case of the social justice left that you have to dumb things down or you have to do a different course load, different coursework based more on inclusion and equity and all these other things, that that's not necessary. In fact, that's the wrong path. This guy's a liberal, folks. It's clear from how he's writing. This guy's a liberal leftist. But he understands education. He understands the need to inspire the mind of all people. He takes the, the, the very basis of what we would think is, is our need for equality and equity, that we are all God's children, that we are all equivalent in, in terms of our, um, our moral worth, and we all should be treated equally as human beings, and, and our ability to grow and the life of the mind to grow within us should all also be treated equally as human beings. The social justice left does not see it that way. They want different approaches based on who different people are. And this guy's fighting that. I mean, he points out how absurd that is and how it has failed historically and how there have been other times when people thought that they were doing a favor to the new immigrants. They thought they were doing a favor to the poor, to people in urban ghettos to people you know by by changing curriculum to to make it so that it was you know less of a challenge or that it was more representative of of you know in- inclusiveness and and diversity in terms of the reading list or whatever it may be and that that wasn't a good idea that we've tried to exper- experiments failed in the past the left has to crush this guy and there's one more point here about all this I thought was so. I mean, this was fascinating stuff, and we'll have we'll put it up on Facebook.com so you, uh, buck, slash Buck Sexton so you guys can see it. Producer Mark, please remember, remind me to make sure we do that. McWhorter, who, by the way, is an African-American writer, who's the guy who wrote the piece, breaking all this down, McWhorter says at the end that what you see from this petition is that it's, it's not that they, uh, the people writing this petition, this change.org petition, to get this guy fired, it's not that they think calling someone white supremacist is just a a tool that is useful for blunt force politics, which it certainly is. But he says that it's clear from reading this petition that they view calling someone a white supremacist as in and of itself all that is necessary for someone's destruction. They, they, they Essentially, they believe the argument. Once you've called someone a white supremacist, they must be that and must be treated as such without any argument, without any under, underpinning justification terrifying in the implications but this is where the social justice left has gone destroying good people who do good things for minority communities while pretending to be caring about the very minority communities that were helped by the other guy all right team so as we discussed today is veterans day and i want to bring on we you we have many uh, good friends who are veterans who are frequent uh, guests here on the show our friend brandon webb joins us now he is the founder of softrep.com which also owns crate club and uh, they have a show inside the team room he's going to tell us a bit about. Also, Brandon is a former Navy SEAL himself. 
Brandon, happy Veterans Day, man. Thank you for your service. Uh, what are your what are your th- let's just start with your opening thoughts today as it's a day to actually appreciate those who have served. You know, I mean, my thoughts and thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. My thoughts are, you know, this is a day to, to acknowledge, you know, veterans that serve. But in the, in the larger picture, you know, I, I think your audience would appreciate the fact now more than ever, more than more than ever, we need to really think about, you know, what we're doing abroad and 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 do we really have a well thought out foreign policy strategy in place because. You know, you and I have both lost friends since 9-11. And, you know, I hate to look at what we're doing in Afghanistan now, almost 20 years in. And, you know, I think we just have to really hold hold our politicians accountable and make sure that we're we're putting forth America's best and brightest to a to a cause that we can get behind as a country. And I mean, do you think we should get out get out of Afghanistan, Brandon? I know you served there. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the mission when I was over there was very clear after 9-11. You know, I deployed in 2001, 2002. It was killed a bunch of bad guys and wipe out the training camps, which we did. And personally, I, I think we probably would have been better off packing up and, and leaving in 2003. And I just look at, you know, the the amount of billions of dollars pumped into that country and really what are we going to have to show for it? And, you know, ideally if we look at it, if we pulled out tomorrow, the Taliban is back in power. So it's just one of those things, um, you know, not going a tangent, but you look at Syria, right? Um, I think Trump made the right call by pulling troops out of Syria because we don't really want to get into a proxy war with, with Russia and Iran. Um, and, and so you think Syria is the right move. Do you feel like uh, the administration by large, I mean, when you talk to veterans about uh, about how Trump is doing as commander in chief, what's the what's the overriding uh, sentiment that you pick up? I mean, it's a good question, right? I, I think largely the, the sentiment that that I hear among my fellow veterans is that that Trump has been a pretty good commander in chief, like in the form of really respecting the troops, which. You know, I served under the Clinton administration when I first joined the Navy, and I, I, it was well known amongst all military service members that there was kind of a, a disdain of sorts for uh, men and women in uniform, and, and that's just not good for morale, right? Yeah, uh, that, that, is clearly, that is clearly the case. Brandon, tell us about uh, Inside the Team Room, the show that you guys have launched over at SoftRep. So... The first team room show we did was back in 2012 when we launched softrep.com. It actually featured Chris Kyle, uh, Ameri- who was the American sniper at the time. Him and I had uh, two books out together, mine being the Red Circle and his being American sniper. And that show did extremely well. We since pulled it down out of respect to the f- for the family, but the series have, have carried on. So we just launched a new series on softrep.com called Inside the Team Room, Navy SEAL Snipers. Um, it features myself, uh, Charlie Melton, who worked with me as an instructor at the Sniper Program, and, and really goes into like areas of conversation that you just don't find on typical uh, television or cable programming. Uh, and that's what I think really makes the show special is, you know, Charlie can you know, talk about the struggles of transitioning from active duty to civilian life, but also, 
you know, the time he, he shot someone at 60 yards with a 50 cal sniper rifle. So, but, you know, the, the stories are engaging and, um, you know, I think people are really going to enjoy the show. Where do people go to find it? At uh, softrep.com. We put the first three episodes on YouTube, on our YouTube channel for free. Um, but our, um, you know, we have a military version of Netflix on SoftRep, so people can, can sign up for monthly and, and access the video, the rest of the series there. Former Navy SEAL and SoftRep.com founder Brandon Webb. Brandon, my friend, great to have you on the show. Happy Veterans Day to you, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, brother, and keep up the good work. Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. All right, let's get into some of our emails, our Facebook posts, uh, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. If you want to send in a note there, and if you want to do stuff on the on the email, you want to kick it old school, the way to do that is to write to us at teambuck at iheartmedia.com. Carl says, Buck, Carl here, just saying you sound like the guy off Princess Bride, you know, that Mel Brooks played or the witch that yells... You know, it's the inflection of the tone that's hilarious. When do I sound like the princess? Oh, when I do Bernie? Bernie Sanders? I don't know. I don't know who we're talking about here. Well, as far as Joe Biden goes, he needs about four or five years of Prevagen. Um, what? And producer Mark, uh, Huey, Dewey, Louie, and Scrooge McDuck. Uh, okay. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really know what's going on here, Carl. I appreciate you writing in. All right. Um, Benny. Benny and the Jets. Hey, Buck. How many more slanted, biased, non-attributable, false, misleading, quote, news articles will it take before conservatives on Capitol Hill begin using Alinsky's tactic of ridicule as a most potent weapon? If a conservative is asked to comment on a story from The New York Times, they respond every time they didn't read it, nor do they comment on anything that from a particular fraudulent source will be the American people. Bob, woo. Shields high, Benny. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know where the meat. We're fighting. We're fighting the anti. We're in the media fighting the anti-media war. That seems to be what's going on here. Karen about Christine Blasey Ford. Right, she can't remember where or when that party was, but she claims Brett Kavanaugh assaulted her. But she remembers she only had one beer. When my alcoholic clients say one beer, they mean a forty-ounce bottle. Well, Karen, as you know, I think that the Blasey Ford was a political hit, and I think that she was uh, uh, probably just delusional, but definitely incorrect and possibly lying intentionally. Um, but that's that's where I am on this. Uh, let's see here. Lowell writes, I listen to your show because of your version of the day's events. I really like the roll call structure of interaction with your listeners' opinions. Taking calls from people in the middle of the show is what everybody else does. It gets old. I really like everything you're doing to expand your media company. Kudos to producer Mark. Yeah, well, you know, we appreciate producer Mark. We just don't want him to, you know, get a big head or anything. You know, because now we're doing all this cool new stuff, and producer Mark is, you know, running the cool new stuff. So. Don't worry, my head could never get as big as yours. That is a, that is a literally true statement, because my, my cranium is giant. I meant literally and figuratively, right, well, but, you there know. You go. But producer Mark is here to make sure that uh, the Buckster's feet stay on the ground here in the Freedom Hut, not, not floating up into the sky. Don't worry about that. We have uh, Dixie writes, hey, Buck, just wondering if you've seen and heard the new ad for the Hartford Insurance Company. 
The buck starts here. I have not. Uh, I have not, but I will. Um, I will check it out. John writes, Buck, Trump is the ultimate capitalist. As such, just the fact that he is, uh, he is a direct to the government swamp bureaucrat, blah, blah. Wait, what? Hold on. Trump is the ultimate capitalist. As such, just the fact that he is, is a direct, there we go, to the government swamp and every bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. That's one of the reasons they hate him so much for as long as they do. John. Um, yeah, John, I do think that that is, that you're onto something here with uh, that Trump is a threat to the swamp. They recognize that, and so they act accordingly. So there you go. Um, Jacob. I love that you have an official email now. I'm doing my best to get out the word about Team Buck and recommending the podcast to all my friends. Go Team Buck with your shielder on it. Jake in upstate New York. Jake, thank you, man. I really mean it. Those of you that can, please tell tell your folks, tell your conservative friends to uh, listen to the Buck Sexton Show. It is the, the single most helpful thing you can do is to get somebody that you know who doesn't already listen to the show to listen. That is a, a game changer for us here. All right, now we'll go over to the Facebook side of things. We got Jonathan writes, Buck, producer Mark, don't go knocking out libs. The camera is mightier than the progressive mouth. Point it their way and they melt like the witch from Oz. That is all. Thank you, Jonathan. Don't worry. We are we are not violent, violent types in here. Um, but and producer Mark was just saying, if anybody were to be uh, disrespectful to Mrs. Producer Mark, there would be hell to pay, which I back 100%. I mean, that's different. That's, that's, that's not just me being violent. No, no, that's you just... Yeah, standing my ground. Standing your ground yeah. being a man. Yeah, that's right. Huh. Totally. But Jonathan, I know, he doesn't want us to give any any liberals a knuckle sandwich. Remember when people say, yeah, I'll give you a knuckle sandwich. That's, you know, old, old-timey old stuff, old-time stuff. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to give anyone a knuckle sandwich unless they uh, start with Really me. deserve it, yeah. Yeah. Julia writes, Buck, great show as always. I agree with you. You have to go with your instincts first. No mouth guard. Might as well wear an Avengers shirt and Crocs while you're at it. Good teeth are for TV people anyways. Shields high. Thank you, Julia, I think. <laughs> I think that's helpful. Uh, I'll take it. I'll, ro- I'll roll with it. So, uh, yes, indeed. Um, the mouth guard, I have, not, I have not yet been able to get that thing to be what I want to do. So... Um, but I'm working. I'm working on all the things. Working on all the stuff. Amanda writes. Thanks for the book recommendations. Also, Endgame, the new Marvel movie stunk. I was so mad that I spent all my time watching it. Um, yeah, she's right, isn't she, Mark? No, she is very, very wrong. Uh, just saying, another one. Put another one on the board for the Buckster. That's like two, and the rest of them are with me. Yeah, so. but the ones who know know what's up. I, I you know what I watched over the weekend. It was it was I was. Can I recommend it? I watched The King on Netflix. It was pretty well done. It's about Henry V, the Battle of Agincourt. It's pretty good, but and the battle sequence they did, I feel like, was hyper realistic, which was an interesting way to go for that period. They did not. It wasn't. A lot of these battles, they have a guy who, you know, is standing in the middle of the battlefield and he's like cutting down people left and right. And it's all very choreographed. And, you know, he's like, yeah, yeah. And you can see him and everything. This battle was just like, man, I mean, dudes rolling around in the mud, stabbing each other in the eyes with, you know, sharpened sticks, crushing each other, horses falling on top of people. I mean, that I it was it was a little little bit like the the best episode of Game of Thrones probably ever, which was the Battle of the Bastards 
where you had that fight sequence. But that was stylized, but it was uh, it was pretty well done, I thought. This was a not a very stylized battle sequence at all, and it was it was good. Um, the movie itself, though, I feel like drags a little bit, a little slow in some places. But it's a Netflix movie. It's pretty good. But yeah, if you want to see something about Henry V and uh, John Falstaff doing their thing, I thought it was uh, it was a it was a solid enough effort. I watched it over the course of the weekend. Lauren writes, "Hey Buck, I just started watching your show on Pluto TV using our Roku. A couple comments: the audio volume between your show and the commercials is significant. The commercials are too loud. Your show is too soft." There's a, uh, okay, more complaints about commercial. Well, we love our sponsors, but Lauren, we will pass this on to producer Mark, and he can see if he can work some of that producer Mark magic to do all the things, make all the things happen. James. Dun, dun, dun. I side with producer Mark. I support the Mets. Shields hire from WGY New York. So James is also miserable. Yeah, Mm. the Mets not so good. Uh, they are uh, usually the laughing stock of baseball. How can that be the case? New York is such a big sports market. So much. Yeah, money well, here. they have ownership that refuses to spend money on the team, but they love when we spend money, you know, buying merchandise and tickets and food and all that stuff. Yeah, but, but they won't spend it on players. Yeah, that's you know. not good. That's that's not a recipe for success. I feel like it's it is not. not. Not in baseball where there's no salary cap. Mm. Mm. What's the be- what are like the mega teams? Well, the Yankees, they're okay. the ultimate team. The Red Sox, the Dodgers, most so of the big the ones, the kind of the marquee names, it's not like a team. Yeah. It's not like, you know, Golden State Warriors were a joke 10 years ago or 15 years yes. ago. Now they're like the team. Well, now they're not anymore this year. They have a lot of players injured, but. Well, okay. Well, I was, cl- I, see, I almost dropped some sports knowledge. Almost. He didn't, he didn't let me get it. It was very close. Yeah. I knew more about sports back in the 90s than I do now, but now I have to just read all the time so I can tell Team Buck what's going you on. You still think the Knicks are a good team? Are they not a good team? Oh my God, they're the worst team in basketball. That's really that. That's another. How is that possible? They got the biggest basketball market in the country here. Yes, New York City loves basketball. Well, uh, another ownership problem. Uh, is that the Dolans? The right? Dolans. Yeah, I've heard stories. He's a joke. Them. I knew somebody used to work for them and said that uh, it was amazing to work for a sports franchise where the people who owned the franchise didn't care about sports. Yeah. See, if he was uh, like to the Knicks, like he is to the Rangers, the Knicks would be good. He just leaves the Rangers alone, lets the hockey people do the hockey things. Uh. Doesn't do that with basketball. Uh, I see. Yeah. Right. Cody writes, hey, Buck, have you ever looked up uh, uh, Porter Stansbury before on Wikipedia? I was, yeah, Cody, Porter's my man. Porter's a friend of mine. He's great. So I know all about Porter. Let's see what else we have here. Gina, hey, Buck, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is okay, but it's not just he has no English accent. He starts off with one badly, in my opinion, and within the first 20 minutes or so, it's completely gone. <laughs> <laughs> is that really true? But I will say Alan Rickman is a badass sheriff of Nottingham. I'll cut your heart out with a spoon. Shields high. Gina, you may be right about, about the performance that, uh, what's his name, turned in for Robin Hood, uh, Prince of Thieves. I don't remember. I just remember him walking around like, I am Robin Hood. I do not have an accent. Everyone else is like, hey, who's that Robin Hood? Is he trying to steal bread from the sheriff and give it to the poor people? It was like that, you know? Everyone else has got like a real serious accent. He's like, I am Robin Hood. I have no accent. I didn't think that was cool. Yeah, yeah if everyone else has an accent, you need yeah. an accent. They're walking around. They're like, oh, boy, he's so good with the bow and arrow. Look at him. He takes the bow. He shoots the arrow real, like right straight on. 
Duncan, the blind. I sound just sure. like the guy, Duncan, the assistant hmm. that he has. Like, thank you, Robin Hood. You gave me a bit of bread. It's sure. the 90s, so we think that all British people talk like this a little bit. Unless they're the queen, then they sound fancy. I do love a nice British accent. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I should probably fake one at bars. It'd be helpful here in New York City. All right, that's going to be it today for the Buck Sexton Show team. It has been fantastic, as always. I hope you agree. Spread the word far and wide. Post the links that we share on Facebook and uh, on, on Twitter, please, to your own page, if you don't mind, so some of your friends, some of your folks can see it. That would be a big help. We are trying to grow the show. Have a fantastic Veterans Day, all of you. Please uh, say thank you to a veteran, and we'll talk tomorrow. Shields high.